So I hope this doesn't sound egocentric when um, I say, you know, I, I got some skills, what I do up here. You know, I'm pretty decent at it. But there's always room for growth. And, well, there's one thing that I am not good at that I wish I really was good at today, which is mimicking other people's voices, especially famous people's voices. I won't even try. I'm horrible with accents. I'd be embarrassing myself. You'd be embarrassed that you're sitting here in the room with me. You'd say, just come on, cut it out. And so what I'm going to ask you to imagine is that you, in fact, hear the voice of Arnold Schwarzenegger when I say the following. See, because there was a negative inspiration for today's message and today's movie for Little Miss Sunshine. The writer had the idea to start writing this movie after he heard these words from the mouth of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, again, put on your Austrian accent earplugs right now and just imagine. Schwarzenegger said this. If there's one thing in this world I hate, it's losers. I despise them. That's what he said to a school group. Little Miss Sunshine is about the beautiful losers. It is about those non-winners who turn their lack of triumphs into something meaningful and true and good when they don't get what they want. Now, all the characters in this movie, if you've seen it, how many of you have seen it? All right, that's a lot of you, so you know what I'm talking about. In that mean-spirited sense of the word, it's pretty clear at the beginning of the movie that these folks are not winners. And they all start out pretty miserable. And unlike that old statement, misery loves company, well, in fact, you realize at the beginning of this movie, misery hates company. Misery does not want to be stuck in the back of a VW microbus for 800 miles from Albuquerque, New Mexico, going all the way to Redondo Beach, California. Misery hates company, especially in enclosed spaces. But that's what happens in this movie. This family, as many of you know, has to take a trip together. And on that deeper level, what happens is that the movie is all about that process, that movement from coming apart in isolation to coming together and growing together in connection. The movie is amazingly funny, but it also is so rich, so true. It is a real journey from desperation and sadness and anger and alienation and despair into a deeper joy and into a deeper meaning for all of these characters. Now, the way, the how by which they get there is that they become accidental pilgrims. See, they start out just wanting to take a trip, but in fact, they become pilgrims. They go on a pilgrimage. And this is the difference between just taking a trip and going on a pilgrimage. And sometimes when you're in the midst of it, that's only when you realize it's one, it's not the other. If you go on a trip, go sightseeing, you're just there to, you know, okay, Mona Lisa, got it, check, move on to the next thing, other wing of the Louvre. That's what taking a trip is about. But a journey like a pilgrimage, it shapes your soul. It creates you and recreates you, and pilgrimage opens up for you the opportunities to see life in a way that you had not seen it prior. I think there are fundamentally three parts of pilgrimage. Other writers have said there are seven. There's a really good book called The Art of Pilgrimage, Turning a Trip into Sacred Travel or something like that from a couple years back. It's good. Take a look. But I think things are overly complicated there. I think there's really three fundamental aspects of what it is 
what it means to take a pilgrimage. But even before that, even before you set out on the road, there's one precondition that you have to know. Even if you can't name it, you have to know deep within your soul so your trip can be a pilgrimage. You have to know that something is very, very wrong. You have to know that life is just not working out. That you're out of alignment, out of balance, you don't feel great. Maybe those are the only words you can put into it. That is a necessary precondition through which a trip becomes a pilgrimage. And that's where all the characters in the movie find themselves. And this is the first step of a pilgrimage. Something will happen along your journey that will upset you. Upset your notion of what is right or fair or decent or just upset your notion of what is. And you will be confronted by the unfamiliar. You will be confronted by a world that appears changed and strange and dissonant. doesn't make sense. And what this will do is the second step. It will force you to reevaluate what is important to you. What matters? What really, in the Hindu word for faith, sradha, what is it really meaning in your life for you to set your heart upon something? That's that definition of faith. And that is the second step. And then the third, which invites you to a deeper place of growth and meaning in your life. Those are the three steps in any pilgrimage. The ending result, and it's not often so clear and linear, da 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 But the ending result is that you are invited to that deeper level of wholeness in your existence. That's the journey of a pilgrimage. It's about taking that long walk that all of us have taken or will take at some point in our lives. That long walk from that place of being hurt to that place of being whole. From being hurt to being whole. Now the pilgrimage, it is an essential part of just about every world tradition that I've ever heard of. Buddhism has its version, and Islam has its version, as Judaism has its version, and Native American traditions have their version, and Christianity certainly has its version. It is a universal concept. And not just a concept, it is a universal practice. Many of you know that in Islam, one of the five pillars of Islam is the Hajj, which is that in your life as a Muslim, you are expected to make pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca. And in that, undergo a deepening of your experience of the Spirit. Probably the most famous, or at least most well-known, at least to those of us here in the West, experience of the Hajj is Malcolm X's. Have you read the autobiography of Malcolm X? Remember that? Well, what happens when he makes the Hajj and goes to Mecca is his life is falling apart. He is outcast from those who he had formerly trusted, and he is beginning to question what he had formerly absolutely accepted. And these are his words right from the autobiography. There were tens of thousands of pilgrims. They were of all colors, from blue-eyed blondes to black-skinned Africans. But we were all participating in the same ritual, displaying a unity of brotherhood, of community, that my experiences in America had led me to believe could never exist between white and non-white. You may be shocked to hear these words coming from me, but on this pilgrimage, what I have seen and experienced has forced me to rearrange much of my thoughts previously held, and that is one of the marks of intelligence, to open and to be open to new experience. During the past 11 days here in the Muslim world, I have eaten from the same plate, drunk from the same glass, and slept in the same bed while praying to the same God 
with fellow Muslims whose eyes were the bluest of the blue, whose hair was the blondest of the blonde, and whose skin was the whitest of the white. And I have felt with them that same spirit of unity and connection. This is what pilgrimage can do. Open you up to a new way of seeing the world. Open you up to, in fact, admitting that what you had known previously was wrong. And there is new evidence. New, not just conceptual evidence. That's why a pilgrimage is never about reading a scriptural text. Pilgrimage is a practice. Pilgrimage is experience. Pilgrimage is getting out into the world and allowing yourself to be surprised. Now, Malcolm X was fulfilling one of the tenets of his faith by going on pilgrimage. But the people in Little Miss Sunshine, they are not. They are unintentional pilgrims. But they do know this, just as Malcolm X knew in his own way, privately, even if they can't admit it, that there is defeats and despair lurking right around the corner for them. The life that they know is not working. So before they set out, this is who they are. There is Richard, the father the wannabe author of The Nine Steps. Refusing to lose, they're called. And when we see him at first in the movie, he appears very confident. He's speaking to a group and talking about the nine steps through which you will refuse to lose. And then we turn around and we pan to the audience, and it's about five people there. And at the end, one person... And that's it. We see that he is not making the connection that he wants to. These are some of the nine steps, by the way. They don't talk about it in the movie, but this is the glory of the Internet. You can get on and find what the nine steps are. Say no to the negheads. That's number four. Don't give in to those who are negative. Think big, act big, be big. Number seven. Number eight, reject rejection. <laughs> We're going to come back to that one in just a second. And then there is Frank. Richard's brother-in-law, who has just survived a suicide attempt, is a Proust scholar who is down on his luck and towards the end of himself. The man with whom he in love was in love broke up with him, started dating his rival. Then he loses the MacArthur Genius Grant that he coveted also to the same rival. And then he loses his job. He is taken in by Cheryl, who is married to Richard, who is, with all her effort, trying to hold this absolutely dysfunctional family together. She's the only one who's bringing in any income. And she's anxiously hoping that everything Richard said is true and these nine steps will be published and everything will be okay. And then there's Grandpa. This is the only actor I'm going to name, played by Alan Arkin. He won the Oscar for it. It's wonderful. He is totally profane. He is a womanizer. He's a heroin-sniffing addict. He's a misanthrope. But he also absolutely loves and is dedicated to his granddaughter and is coaching her to participate in the Little Miss Sunshine beauty pageant. And then there's Dwayne, Cheryl's son from her first marriage, who I think we'll see in just a little bit, is the most fascinating character in the movie. He has taken a vow of silence at the age of 16. For over nine months, he has not spoken a single word until he gets into the Air Force Academy and so he can become a test pilot. He reads Friedrich Nietzsche constantly and hates everyone and hates everything. Except for one person, and that is Olive, Little Miss Sunshine herself. 
She is truly the glue that holds them all together. And at the end, as many of you know, in that glorious, ridiculous, liberating scene, it dawns on her and everyone else that the bizarro world of the preteen girl beauty pageant, it's not where she belongs. And it is the invitation to Little Miss Sunshine that gets them out on the road to begin with. They traveled at 800 miles from Albuquerque to Redondo Beach in the VW microbus, and things from the outset go very, very wrong. The clutch breaks, and you probably know that scene where they have to get in back of and one by one come around the side and push it along because they have to keep it all the time in third gear. There is no first or second anymore. And the horn won't stop honking, which leads to a very funny interlude with a cop out of the side of the road, and I think it is the only points and well most of the kids are gone already but i think it's the only point i've ever seen in a movie in which someone's life and livelihood is saved by pornography this pilgrimage takes them out of their ordinary comfort zone and yet in some ways still into some very ordinary circumstances how many of you have taken a family trip in the car this summer okay. bunch of you could have been a pilgrimage this is the family car ride in which everyone's complaining and everyone's too hot and everyone is asking, when are we going to be there? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? This becomes the crucible of their soul. This becomes something very ordinary, becomes something very special. And on the way, not just as the cars start to break down, but their lives do too. All that hanging on, it starts to slip from their fingertips and from their grasp. They encounter all their dragons their fears, their frustrations, their failures, all of them pop up along the side of the road waiting for them. See, because it's a real pilgrimage that they're on, and it's a real pilgrimage that you have taken or are going to take in your life, you will encounter the demons. They will be there waiting to meet you. There's no escaping them. All those things that you maybe said, you know what, I can keep them down, I can keep them down. It's a pilgrimage, it's all going to come up. And because you cannot sink back into the charms of the familiar and the known and the place where you feel grounded and can escape, well, the true pilgrimage starts the minute that you know you can escape and you have to face what is dogging you. All apologies to the late, great Satchel Page. He said, don't turn around. Something could be gaining on you. But in fact, if you think you don't have to turn around because something is gaining on you, it's already on your back and already right here waiting for you. Frank runs into his former boyfriend and his rival and is absolutely humiliated. The book, we realize, these nine steps, they fail. And then, just before the scene that we're going to see, Grandpa dies of a heroin overdose. And through this, the family starts to show, just slightly, some of its deeper resources some of their care and concern for each other, and it comes out of a very unlikely source. The way that Duane communicates is obviously not through speech. He carries around a little pad with him. And as mom starts to break down, because grandpa is dead, Duane scribbles, Olive, go hug mom. And you can see that there is some care lurking there. The process of their coming together after coming apart in isolation, it has started. And really, the ultimate scene in the movie is the one that we're going to see. It is Dwayne's turn to suffer. What happens in this scene is he realizes his dream is dead. What he had banked on will not come true. It's a little longer than normally the scenes I show you, but I want you to see it all.
Break down. Break through. Kind of the same thing here. This is his dark night of the soul, even by the side of a sunny California highway. Now, if you analyze this perspective from what they call family systems theory, the reason it's so important is that Dwayne's silence holds all the things in the family life that they cannot talk about and they cannot face. So when he starts speaking, it rips the lid right off. Finally, I mean, he names them all. Suicide, divorce, bankruptcy, death. It's all there. It all comes out. He says the truth, and he doesn't say it with kindness, and he doesn't say it with love, but he speaks the truth. And he speaks all the things that this family didn't want to face about themselves. And this being a movie, of course, the transition is a little too quick. But you've got to know the truth before there can be any real healing, before there can be any wholeness. He holds the mirror up to his family, and they're able to see who they are. Dwayne's breakthrough is the point at which all of them can break through and find their voice. And we see little Olive, little seven-year-old, wonderful, pot-bellied Olive. Remember when the mom says there's nothing to say? She's absolutely right. There is nothing to say. She goes up, and as you saw, she puts her arm right around him, and she lets him know, I am here, and you are there. There is nothing to say, but I love you. That's what she says. I'm not going anywhere. I'll even stay here and miss the pageant, (laughs) because I love you. A little child shall lead them. See, it's even on pilgrimage, very, very small things that save us and open us up. It is that dependability of learning to draw close again, even in the midst of anger and upset. It is answering the call of love when there are no words to speak to it. Because ultimately, that's the final step in a pilgrimage. It asks you to face the place where the road has ended and you don't believe you can go any further and to trust still that there may be something waiting for you there. A way of being, a quality and a depth of being alive that you could not have seen unless you had seen first what it is that your life actually is. Pilgrimage will give you answers, gives us answers only on the road, not on the map. You cannot take someone else's pilgrimage. You cannot take someone else's journey. You must take your own. I learned this 15 years ago, almost to the day. I was living in the Lehigh Valley with my family. It was the summer between my first and my second year in divinity school. And I was back home with my family, or at least what remained of it, with my sister and my dad and my girlfriend was there with us as well during this year, during this summer. And it was about six months after my mom had died, very suddenly on Thanksgiving Day, had really died in front of all of us unexpectedly. It was not a fun summer. It was the first time we really had been all gathered back together after that semester when we had gone back to college. And we were not so kind to each other. We were not so good to each other. We tried to be, but, you know, there's that kind of (sighs) battling over someone's memory, you know, that can happen. Who knew her best, who loved her the most, 
I think that's where we were looking back. I can understand it now. Then I didn't know. And one thing came hardest to me that summer, not just dealing with the people I loved, but what came hardest to me was sleeping. I must tell you, every night when I thought I was going to go to sleep, I thought it would be the last moment I was ever alive. It was not a very relaxing time in my life. Either transcendental meditation, or to be honest with you, alcohol was the way I got to sleep every night. And well, the alcohol didn't take any effort, so too often that's what I chose. And there was this day towards the end of the summer, and I was working at a friend of my father's law firm, and what that summer cured me of is the idea that the law needed me to be in its profession. I was not going to be a good lawyer. But towards the end of that summer, my sister and I got into one of those arguments that will mark me for the rest of my life. It started simply enough over, I think, something stupid like, where'd you put the TV guide? And it got nasty. And I'm not going to tell you the details because she and I will bear that within us for the rest of our lives. But it was one of those places where in your hurt you lash out. Where in your pain you try to cause pain to someone else. Where in your sorrow, you know what you say, misery does love company, I'm going to give you some of mine. And she gave it back to me as well. It was one of the worst moments in my life. And we left that house that day really wondering if we'd ever be able to see or speak to each other again. And what I did was I quit my job, even left my girlfriend back there with my family, and said, i got to take off. And I drove through the night, seven hours to Cape Cod, where my family had spent a lot of summers over the year, in that place south of Boston, jutting out into the ocean, because it was the only place where I could imagine feeling any safety. And I drove to 4 o'clock in the morning, And I stopped at the first motel I saw that still had a vacancy sign in August. And I spent three days in silence. Just called real quick to tell my dad I was going to be okay, although I didn't believe it. And I just sat on the beach. I didn't sunbathe. I sat on the beach and looked out at the ocean and wondered what the hell had my life become. And pretty much the only sound I heard during that time, remember I had so much trouble sleeping, was that I needed to listen to the TV. At least have that accompany me through the darkness, through the night. And one evening, I think I fell asleep to a Dodgers-Braves game from the West Coast on TBS. And I'd put on the sleep timer. And I woke about four or five hours later, before the sun had come. And I woke up with a jolt. And into absolute and utter darkness. Could not see my hand in front of my face. And at first, my <laughs> every urge in me was saying, go turn on the TV, go out into the hall, turn on the lights, be someplace where you won't feel this profound sense of isolation. Find someplace where you can connect. But I just laid in bed. Laid in bed for two hours in the darkness, in pitch black laid in bed with every single one of my fears, laid in bed with the sense that if I died right there, right then, no one would know exactly where I was, laid there with my deepest, darkest fears about what my life was going to be. And none of them came true. For two hours, 
eyes wide awake and open, eventually starting to see through the curtains, a sliver of light start to come again. It was one of the most necessary hours in my life. Being able to face what were my demons, being able to know, as Emily Dickinson said, that somehow myself survived the night and entered with the dawn. Somehow. I don't know. I just felt that presence there for the first time in a very, very long time. That whatever happened, I was going to be okay. It was something like we saw in the movie. Like even Malcolm X on his pilgrimage. Sharing a meal. A breakdown on the side of the road. Two hours in the darkness. Something very, very small that invited me into the next stage of my life. And this not being a movie, it took about two months before my sister and I were speaking again. But I knew absolutely in that moment that we would. That we would. And there would be something else between us. Now I wish that something else was immediately, right away, as beautiful and as wonderful as the ending of Little Miss Sunshine. Many of you know that. The scene where when they get to the beauty pageant and they realize... This is weird. (laughs) This is weird. And Olive is not spray painting her legs that perfect state, that's perfect color tan. And she's not glossing her lips with Vaseline. And she is a wonderful, beautiful little girl. But she doesn't exactly look too great in a swimsuit, as all these little creepy girls do. And at that point, actually, the nine steps do kick in. This family, which has experienced so much death and disheartenment and despair. They are going to reject rejection. And so what do they do? She starts, and this is Grandpa's final gift to her, a striptease. Super freak. (laughs) And the pageant officials are furious. Get her off there. Get her off there. She's making a mockery. And what they don't realize is, of course, they're making a mockery of themselves just by holding this pageant in the first place. And the family is, you know, wondering, will she be ashamed? Will she feel guilty? Will she feel judged? And what do they do? There are no words. There are no words to take that situation away. They just get up and dance. All of them together, they get up and dance. They experience that sense of wholeness and that sense of peace and that sense of joy that we really imagine they might not be able to experience ever again in their lives. One of the songs in the movie that actually we never hear sung, but it's one of my favorite songs, is when they first set out on the road. It's by Soup John Stevens. It's called Chicago. And the refrain in that song says, all things go to recreate us. All things go to recreate us. They have taken that opportunity that pilgrimage has afforded them to be recreated because they could have kept going down the path that they did before because their heartache is real and their despair is authentic and they have encountered all their demons. But, but all things can go to recreate us. The final thing we learn from pilgrimage is this, that the challenge in life, on the road or at home, 
The challenge is not to keep our hearts unscarred because that is an absolutely impossible task. The point in our lives and the power of a pilgrimage is that it is an invitation to us, to all of us, whatever your road is, to grow a bigger heart. Grow a bigger heart today. Amen. May you live in blessing. We're not going to have stomach flu. We're not going to have cancer. We're not going to have pain. We're not going to have sorrow. We're not going to have disease. Do you realize that what the transfiguration is showing us is that not only is Jesus all glorious, but as his people, that we too will share in that glory for all eternity. I can't wait. Now, of course, it sounds kind of funny, but we're all going to be little moons Because we will all be reflecting the glory that emanates from Christ. In fact, the Bible says in Revelation at the end that the intensity of the glory of God in the new heavens and the earth, it is so brilliant and so intense that God will no longer need to create secondary light sources in the universe. The whole universe recreated, will be illuminated by this very same glorious one. And guess what? We get to live in it forever. That is, if you do know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. The Word does have something to say about those who reject Christ and His sacrifice for their sin. We don't get to dwell in the light. Those who are apart from Christ in the day of judgment, are cast into outer darkness, the eternal hell, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, the absence totally of God's presence, of his, his, his presence in the sense of His um, presence of blessing. Of course, God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. But what I'm saying is, is that there is no sense of any delight. There's no sense of any joy. There's no sense of anything that would be associated with God for those eternally who reject his son as their Lord and Savior. And so the transfiguration also reminds us that this Jesus who will transform his people is also so pure and so bright in his holiness that he must deal with sin and he must judge wickedness. And today may be the day where you come out of darkness and you cling to the marvelous light of Jesus Christ before it's too late. And fourthly, fourthly we see that this is to assure both the disciples and Jesus himself to stay the course that is set before him. To stay the course that was set before him. Jesus knows he must go to the cross, but remember that Jesus is fully human as well as fully God, and so there is anxiety that will continue to increase in Jesus the closer we get to the cross, to where he's praying in the garden, sweating blood. And so this is a point for where Jesus himself will also receive recognition of glory and honor from the Father, but also reassurance To stay the course. 
And it's a testimony to these three that Jesus must go this route. So Jesus is transfigured. The second point this morning is the testimony. And we're going to give a little bit of information here and then go to the table because we just don't have the time to develop everything. And next week we'll get back to this and I'll develop this a little more. But here's what I want you to see today. First of all, notice that as there are three witnesses, we might call them earthly witnesses, Peter, James, and John, there will also be, in this passage, three heavenly witnesses. Those are Moses, Elijah, and God himself. See the parallel. Both sets of witnesses point to the glory of Jesus Christ and affirm that And so what happens here is Jesus, God the Father, puts before us the testimony of Jesus, not only based on the witnesses of three, but double the witness. So you have six witnesses, three from heaven, three from earth, that are able to come together. Remember, Jesus always talks in terms of all of heaven and earth. He goes beyond just the planets and the physical universe as a testimony of his glory. He picks individual persons, real persons, who testify. Now the three heavenly are testifying of the glory of Jesus in which the three earthly will receive that testimony of Jesus and carry that ministry to the end of the earth. But also what's interesting about these three heavenly witnesses is who they are and why they're there. I'm going to give you a little bit of information and then we'll pick this up next week. Okay? First of all, we see in verse 3 that, Behold, there appeared to them, that is the three, Moses and Elijah talking with him, that is Jesus. Now why Moses and Elijah? What's the significance of these two witnesses who show up on the scene? Well, in Israel's history, when the name Moses would come up, There's no doubt in the mind of any Jew that Moses would be seen in his association with the exodus and the the, uh, dispensing of the law of God to the people of God. Moses is seen in a clear association with the law of God. Elijah is seen in association with being one of the great prophets, perhaps one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. So here you have testifying to Jesus, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. Now think back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets but to fulfill it. Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hinge the law and the prophets. Law and prophets are another way of speaking of God's Old Testament revelation. Moses the law Elijah, the prophets. 
Now here's also some interesting parallels to think through. Both Moses and Elijah as well had experiences with God upon a high mountain. Moses, Mount Sinai, where God revealed his law, God put his glory on display, peals of, uh, or, um, yeah, there's thunders and lightnings and earthquakes, smoke coming off the mountain. Pretty impressive. Of course, the people of Israel said, you talk to this God, Moses, we want nothing to do with him, he's too scary. God says, you come close to this mountain and touch it, you're dead. You have Elijah. He's up on a mountain. His mountain is called Mount Carmel. What happens to Elijah on on Mount Carmel? Well, he meets all these priests of Baal, and there's a showdown between who is the true God of Israel. And so both experience God upon a mountain. Also, both see the miraculous displays of God's glory. As I said before, Moses sees the thunders and lightnings at Sinai, and Elijah is able to see the fire from heaven come down and consume the offering. In both instances, these men are able to see God put on display his terror, his holiness, his glory, and his power. But also, Moses and Elijah are able to be mediators of God's covenant love and call to his people back to himself. They also have incredible end-time significance. In Deuteronomy 18.18, God says to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Moses is told there's going to be coming one from amongst the people of Israel who will be a prophet and who will speak in the end times. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In other words, these two men served as types of a future fulfillment. Now put it all together. Why is it the historical Moses and the historical Elijah that are speaking there with Jesus as testimony? Because God is putting on display the fact that number one, all that is seen in the Old Testament was in order to prepare the people to receive the fulfillment who is Jesus Christ. The law and the prophets are the shadows. Jesus is truly the light. All the law and prophet testify of Jesus. Jesus told this to his disciples after he rose from the dead. He says, look, take out your Bibles, which was the Old Testament. Read through it now, understanding that it all talks about me. God is putting Jesus in an elevated status as the fulfillment of all of Israel's longing by providing in Israel's midst its two great witnesses, its two great ones who will testify of Jesus. How interesting that God would choose these two guys to be allowed to speak with his son. 
and to show the whole world that Jesus Christ is the unique fulfillment of all that I've promised. There is no need to look any further. This is the one. All of the law, all of the prophets, Jesus says, are fulfilled in me. I am their purpose. I am their end. I am their reason. I am the one who will bring all that has been promised to pass. Look no further. And as we'll see next week, Luke will record for us that what they were talking to Jesus about was the cross. And that's where our attention turns to this morning.